Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Starship Sofa. Part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring tales to terrify and the all-new far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome, hello, and welcome to show 422. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. We've got a mammoth show today, and I'm, I'm rather proud of it. Yes, I'll tell you what's coming up straight away. And I'm going to get... I'm going to get a bit emotional here. We have Fiction Crawler 16 by, uh, did you forget who did it? Matthew Sanborn Smith, no less. Yes, that is coming up. Then we have an interview with Professor Christopher Riley, who we're going to talk about Apollo 14 astronaut Edgar Mitchell. Now, I interviewed Chris Riley a few months ago on the, the Voyager, if everyone remembers that interview on the kind of Voyager, the NASA Voyager spaceships. That's kind of going off and drifting off now out of the edge of the galaxy. Out of the edge of the galaxy, out of the solar system. And I had a little chat with Chris about the, the astronaut Edgar Mitchell. Then we have the main fiction, which is Rights and Wrongs by Brian K. Lowe. And right at the end, we have one more interview with Sal Chirino, who has discovered a new whale. Yes, I'm telling you, on this world we live, we think we know everything. Sal has discovered a new whale, or has actually found where they're living. So that is all coming in today's show. We're going to jump straight in there. <laughs> Here we go. It wells us up. Fiction Crawler 16, Matthew Sambon Smith. Hello, my cushion-burned sofa survivors. I am the highly imitable Matthew Sanborn-Smith, and this is The Fiction Crawler. We're not even going to talk about how long I've been gone, except for that part right there. To catch everyone up, The Fiction Crawler is where I scavenge my favorite free stories from across the web and drop them half-dead and twitching at your doorstep. I only talk about the stories I like because we all know you have no problem finding the crappy stuff on your own. We begin. 
Helen Marshall won a whole pile of awards last year for her collection Gifts for the One Who Comes After, and you lucky gremlins get to enjoy one of those stories for free at Tor.com. The Hanging Game is there waiting for you like a creepy salmon that won't stay in its can. Helen's tale transports us to her mysterious northern homeland of Kanada. There, deep in the woods, children strangle themselves and speak prophecies they themselves cannot hear. For a moment, they give themselves to Hangjaw, a dark forest god who is the father of bears. So, for a moment, he gives back. And if anyone decides to take from Hangjaw, he in turn takes back. Though on the human scale, he has all the time in the Pacific Northwest to do so. So these ropes of hanging are tied somewhere to those ropes of giving and taking, and they all run the length of the characters' lives and generations beyond. There's a weight in the souls of these people, or maybe it's the tug of the ropes, as they try to live their lives having glimpsed the fates of those around them, or knowing the prices they have to pay will someday come due. I told Helen her story explained why we didn't see many children in Twin Peaks. They were in the woods playing life-and-death games with primeval gods. In a surprisingly small amount of words, she generates a similar peaky thickness of atmosphere in the dark green recesses of Lumberjack Land. You can almost smell the blood on the cedar trees. Or you could, if you were able to breathe. Elizabeth Bear and Sarah Monette have written a few stories in a space opera universe that mixes strong doses of H.P. Lovecraft's works with those of Lewis Carroll. Some of you are on board already. Others are decidedly off board. The story we're talking about today is The Wreck of the Charles Dexter Ward, which you can listen to at Drabblecast.org, episodes 254 and 255. It's not like Dr. Cynthia Fuhrwerker has done things she's not proud of. She seems okay with them. But her dabbling in mysteries better left that way has freaked the folks around her out to the point that nobody wants her doctoring around here no more. She's out of work, and to keep from being flushed out of an airlock as a drain on space station life support, she signs on with a salvage ship run by a group of Arkhamers, who seem to be space-wandering occult scholars. It seems like a match made in Rillie, as most people dislike Arkhamers as much as they dislike Cynthia, but she knows from the get-go she's being used. She just doesn't know how. The Arkhamers are going to salvage the Charles Dexter Ward, a Boojum, which is a living ship, or in this case, a used-to-be living ship. Once Cynthia's away team get inside that grand decomposing thing, they discover a lone survivor, happily puttering away with her own forbidden knowledge, and soon the used-to-be living ship is also a used-to-be dead ship. I've mostly had enough Lovecraftian work to last me to the grave, as have some of you, but the cross-pollination of ideas this universe inspires, joined with the mystery of the plot, clever twists, and grotesque action, may reanimate the dead Lovecraft fan in you. I'm going to go listen to the other stories in this series. Well, not this instant, I still have more to tell you. I am deeply saddened to have first-hand knowledge of the manager's mantra, retail is detail. The only reason I haven't thrown myself off of the uppermost display shelf is that great fiction is also detail. Christy Yant, one of our beloved fellow sofa surfers, piles on the type of details we may think we'd be better off without in her story, My Mother's Body, at DailyScienceFiction.com. One of the story strands here concerns the narrator herself, who is preparing to donate her organs. Every one of them someone could want, and a bit earlier than most of us would be comfortable with. But that's not the most disturbing part, or the most powerful. Intertwined with that is the story of her mother's body at the hard end of life, overripe with age and damaged by disease. Those details I warned you about come springing up here. Christie's camera zooms in tighter than any close-up, and its subject is not a young Hollywood body. She holds us up by the backs of our necks and makes us face mortality, located in that one spot we concentrate on not looking nearly 24 hours a day, right in front of us. Our mothers are the closest link we have to a chain stretching backward into eternity, and usually the ones we love the most. Christy concentrates on the physical, and what is implied is the existential and the deeply emotional. A history together, love and pain, and the bond that does not break until the last link is pulled into the past by the rest of the chain, and you realize you're next into the void. 
but the narrator is making plans to go a different way. Ladies and gentlemen, it is far beyond the time to sing the praises of Alice Sola Kim. I've been putting it off, waiting to find an online version of her brilliant story, The Other Graces for Asimov's, or more recently, A Residence for Friendless Ladies for FNSF. But I've realized, like Brooke Bolander's work, which I mentioned last crawler, you can pretty much pick up anything by Alice Sola Kim and enjoy it while getting a taste of her style. Her latest story, The Other Guest, lurks at LennyLetter.com. A group of friends spend a Christmas Eve dinner together telling stories to each other as the narrator fills us in on her relationships with these people with yet more stories. What sneaks in is her itching anxiety about one of the people there, or not there, which is appropriate because throughout the narration and the little stories that hang within it like caterpillars in a nest, people are leaving. To go to the bathroom, to go out of town, to go out of existence. When they're gone, their presence is still felt through memories, whether shared or kept to oneself. Perhaps it's one of those people the narrator hears downstairs. Reading nearly any story by Kim is like leaving town yourself for a place that you know some distance away. The landmarks are familiar until about three-quarters of the way in when you notice something new is being built. And you don't remember that barn being there before, and you're in deep before you have to admit you must have taken a wrong turn back there even though you never saw it happen. You're part of an alien landscape that has crept up on you. You can stay, or you can move forward, or you can turn back, but you can't not have been there ever again. I can't stress enough that I love this author's writing, folks. I think Kim is probably half my age, but her work is influencing my own writing more than any other's is at the moment. As I tweeted last year, she's incapable of writing an uninteresting sentence. Go read The Other Guest and anything else of hers you can get your eyes on. I've recommended E. Lily Yu on Fiction Crawler before, but she has to be recommended again because she can't stop writing good stories. Her story, Daedalum, The Devil's Wheel, at ClarksWorld.com, leapt out at me because the writing is dazzling, the references rain down on me faster than a monologue by the love child of Dennis Miller and Harlan Ellison, and I didn't know what the hell was going on for an embarrassing percentage of the story. How could I not love it? I don't want to tell you the details in case, like me, you delight in trying to figure your way out of a wet paper bag. I'll link to the text version, but I suggest listening to the audio version where it's less convenient to go back or scan ahead. What I can tell you is that Daedalum is about a battle many of us are fighting every 24 short hours of our lives. It's about what we sacrifice for our passions, or what we say are our passions. It's about the sacrifice of our passions. Our decisions sometimes seem like they're all about the money, but every so often the facade crumbles and before we hastily rebuild it, we see that time is exposed as the hardest currency of all. Life can be assessed only if we have the stomach to look down at the rubble we're standing in. But don't get too down on yourself. We're enjoying someone else's misery for a few minutes and use blazing chops warp that misery into an amusement park ride. Longtime crawler fans know that none of my selections delight me more than old print stories I loved long ago that I rediscover in a form I can share here with you. Once in the approaching death throes of the 1990s, I read a story in the pages of fantasy and science fiction that has haunted me since. I recently discovered it online at the author's website, ianrmcleod.com. The story is Turkaluk. In the early 1940s, British science officer Seymour starts his watch at an Arctic weather station. He's soon consumed by the solitude and monotony until he saves the life of an outcast indigenous woman named Turkaluk. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Her former tribe associates her with a very dark spirit, and Seymour gets a taste of her remarkable healing powers after a minor mishap. But then there's a major mishap at the beginning of the unforgiving Arctic winter. Turkaluk puts her wisdom into action, and Seymour slowly experiences a disturbing transformation that only he seems to be okay with. I mean, even Turkaluk seems to be on our side on this one. 
McLeod's prose is aurora beautiful and makes one long for the lonely north, evoking the cold that pierces the bones, the natural order on the ground or in the sea, tearing at the edge of survival with torn claws or icy winds, and the vastness of the black sky above. Through it all is the mystery of what's beyond, both geographically and metaphysically, and what happens to a man who wanders just past the boundaries of everything he's ever known. Turkula gripped me even 18 years after I first encountered it, and I was angry that I had to put it down at one point to get ready for my day job. I mean, my ADD ass is usually looking for escape from even stories that I love after a certain brief time, but this story had me and held me, and called me back from every distraction life could muster. That's it. Go read. Links to everything are in the show notes for this episode. There are more stories on my shortlist than I have time to cover here, but I'll be finishing up my own podcast in a few months, and I should be able to hang with you a little more than I have in the past. Not hang in Helen Marshall's sense of the word. If this hasn't been enough me for you, you're part of a proud minority, and you'll be pleased to know that there's more me at MatthewSanbornSmith.com. If you want to listen to past fiction crawlers, you can find them on the Sofas site, through the podcast button near the top, then Fact Articles, then Fiction Crawler. Why am I even telling you this? You've heard of online. You can question the relevant authorities. Until donuts make my brown eyes blue, this will be Matthew Sanborn Smith reminding you, reading is fundamental. Fundamental. Can I say, man? The the worth the weight in gold. That's all. Math is what can I say? A big thank you, big thank you. And next week we've even got a poetry planet, and it's been over a year since you've seen one of them or heard one of those. So how cool is that? Coming by Diane Severson. So again, we're going to jump straight in because there's so much to get through. We've got. I've I had a chat with Professor Christopher Riley about Edgar Mitchell, who sadly passed away a couple of couple of days ago. And I just thought it would be lovely to get a kind of perspective of this astronaut because he was larger than life and had some unusual quirks, should we say. If you want to do as well with this interview, if you wanted to pop over to YouTube, I've actually uploaded it onto YouTube and there's all pictures. Like It's actually like a little film documentary over there as well, just to give you a kind of you know, a visual who is Edgar Mitchell and just some of the things he's done there. So pop over to my YouTube channel and you will find that. So Christopher, just who was Edgar Mitchell and, you know, why should we really care about him or remember him? Edgar Mitchell was the sixth man to um, walk on the moon. Uh, And of course, so few people have ever walked on the moon, so few humans, only 12 in total, that that is reason alone to um, to reflect on his um, recent death. Um, but Edgar was also a kind of astronaut apart, I think, from many of the other moonwalkers, simply because of his um, his background. He, he'd grown up, grown up um, in Roswell. He'd, he'd studied at, uh, at MIT. He was a real intellectual, the background in quantum physics, um, and an interest, I guess, in exploring uh, things that many other scientists were shunning away from at the time. So, um, for example, extrasensory perception was of interest to him. And in the years after Apollo, he founded a, an organization that was interested in studying consciousness, which was way ahead of its time as well. Let's just get back then to a big, because I've got a, a note here that says, he, Himself and Alan Shepard, these, you know, helped to kind of recover Apollo 13's successful failure. Now, can you just explain how they did that? Yes, well, of course, uh, it's it's easy to forget, actually, that Alan Shepard 
uh, and Edgar Mitchell and Stu Rusa, the the third, um, the command module pilot, the third astronaut on Apollo 14, they'd originally been slated to fly on Apollo 13. That was their mission. It was decided quite late on by NASA that Alan Shepard just needed a bit more time uh, for his training. Um, and so they switched with the Apollo 14 crew, who became the Apollo 13 crew, and their, their training was accelerated. And uh, and the rest, of course, is history. And that Apollo 13 didn't go to plan. There was an explosion on the service module on the way to the moon. And, and the lives of the crew and the future of the Apollo program was thrown into jeopardy. And, of course, any of us who've seen the Tom Hanks Apollo 13 film or are familiar with the story will know that, of course, Apollo 13 made it back against the odds and everyone survived. But for NASA to recover from that and to um, to decide instead of winding things down to go back to the moon and to do it even more boldly with um, with more science done and greater exploration was very brave. And the Apollo 14 mission became that's that recovery mission for NASA. It was the first mission to to go to to the rocky kind of lunar highlands, if you like, and a geologically more interesting area than the previous two uh, missions that had landed Apollos 11 and 12 had done. Um, and it was a bold um, field site. Uh, they were aiming to go to a place called Cone Crater. Cone Crater was an enormous impact uh, crater, 700 miles um uh, a, a blast 700 miles away from the Cone Crater site had, had thrown this huge blanket of debris that had been excavated deeply from within the moon. And um, the exciting thing for the geologists and the other scientists behind the mission was that they were potentially going to find really ancient lunar material there. But to do so um, would require them to travel further from the lunar module on foot than anyone had been before. And that also was going to pose challenges. And in fact, um, uh, on their second um, spacewalk, their, their second EVA uh, across the lunar surface, pulling, I would say, um, a rather cumbersome uh, sort of wheeled science trolley, they got really lost. And they, um, they, they walked over a mile from the lunar module in search of the, uh, the edge of Cone Crater and in the end had to abandon their search for it, just returning with, within 75 feet of the edge of the crater they got so close to it but didn't know they were that close and then walked the kind of over a mile back again oh, wow. um, and so these were all bold brave things they were all firsts that um that apollo astronauts had never done before and um and they did it magnificently and set the scene for these major j-class science missions that followed apollo's 15 through to 17 with the lunar rover so Really, the stakes were quite high. If they'd really blown Apollo 14, then then the future of Apollo would have probably been cancelled. What I'm interested in, though, is, you know, yes, he, he has done all that, but what you mentioned in your introduction, he, was, he wasn't your typical straight-laced astronaut, you know what I mean? He kind of, he really did believe in kind of aliens and faith healers. That, that must have sat a little bit weird for everybody. Uh, yes, I think his fellow astronauts, who are, are all much more sort of straight laced engineers and test pilots and and even other scientists they uh they found his um let's put it like this way his open-mindedness quite um uh disconcerting i suppose um and he was apart from the others as i as i said before and um and i think the thing that made him kind of open-minded was that he um and and maintained a credibility i think which which he still mostly managed to do was was that he had this strong 
science background. And, you know, I interviewed him just over 10 years ago now for, for my feature film In the Shadow of the Moon. And um, uh, when I sat down with him to talk, talk about um, some, of, some of that stuff, I mean, there, was, there were all sorts of stories around at the time of him believing in, um, in aliens. He'd grown up in a house in, in Roswell and was there as a teenager when it had been reported that aliens had landed there. And he did have these kind of quirky perspectives on the fact that we'd been visited. He was really sure about that. Um, but at the same time, he he was also um, collaborating, I remember, with Nobel Prize winning physicists. This was in the uh, early 2000s. And, um, and I remember thinking, do you know, you know, if he was a a total kind of crackpot, as it were. These Nobel Prize winners wouldn't entertain his his collaborations, and yet they did because um, they felt that you know he was he was worth um, his open mindedness and his scientific approach to to things and his scientific rigor through his studies at MIT were worth a collaboration with. Um, so it's hard to pigeonhole him because you know you can't write him off as someone that just sort of did these ESP experiments. Uh, which we should talk about, actually, that he attempted on the way um, uh, back from the moon, but that, um, you know, he he was just an open-minded man, more open-minded than any of the other astronauts, perhaps. Well, tell, go on, Chris, tell us a little bit about these experiments. Yeah, so he, he'd been persuaded by some medical doctors that he got to know in, in California that um, uh, there, were, there was no reason why distance should make a, uh, a difference to whether or not extrasensory perception or the, the ability to kind of communicate um, th- between minds that are s- separated by, by space um, couldn't, couldn't happen. And what, what better way to experiment with ESP than, than across this gap between humans that had never been open before in that these people were travelling further during the course of the Apollo programmes than, than, than any other human being had done from Earth in history. And so... So, so they took um, a series of um, cards with symbols on them, away with, with them on the mission. And then back on Earth, I think in California, um, at set times of day, these doctors would, would um, settle down and try and open their minds up to um, the, the symbols and cards that, that Edgar was thinking about. And I think it was done vice versa as well. So they would try and transmit to each other the images on these cards, these symbols on these cards that the other was thinking about. And then they would make careful notes on the picture that entered their minds. And, um, and it was a pretty, it's a pretty simple experiment in that respect. And you can tell statistically whether you've guessed right more often than, than chance. And um, so they did this, but there was a flaw in their experiment in that they got all their timings mixed up. Um, And so those on the ground weren't, thinking and opening their minds at the same time as Edgar was. And so um, in the end, it was all written up in a journal of, um, of psychology in 1971, this experiment. But it was shown when they analysed the data to be um, strangely wrong. So by that, I mean that um, it wasn't wrong by chance. It was more wrong than it should have been, uh, if, if you see what I mean. And they attributed that to being some evidence that somehow it was working, but it was by no means conclusive at all. Right. Um, and actually, it's also forgotten that um, Edgar was sort of disappointed that he'd messed up the experiment a bit. And so he persuaded Charlie Duke on Apollo 
16, a couple of missions later, to, to repeat the same experiment again. And Charlie was so exhausted by his three days on the moon that he fell asleep um, <laughs> on the way back and he failed to do it as well. So it's never been done. Right, right. Oh, that's, a, that's a great story. You know, we've got all that about him, but he is regarded as one of the greats. I hear, well, I read somewhere that NASA administrator Charles Bolden, he calls Mitchell one of the pioneers in the space exploration whose shoulders we now stand on. I mean, that's some mighty praise. Do you think that, Chris, is, is a good description of of Edgar Mitchell? Yeah, I mean, I think um, you could say that of all the Apollo astronauts in a way, and uh, because the thing that they were all doing extraordinarily, even extraordinarily all these decades on, was was to leave the Earth behind, leave Earth orbit and and reach out across this quarter million mile void of space. And so for all of them, you, you know, they, they were all pioneers. And Edgar maybe more so a little bit because of this open-mindedness to, to other things. And um, as I mentioned before, you know, when he left NASA, which was in the early 80s, I think, um, he very quickly um, founded this Institute of Noetic Sciences, which was another pioneering thing. And the Institute's um, aim was to study consciousness. And consciousness in the sort of 70s and 80s, 60s even, was seen as a not really a science. It was it was kind of on the borders of the spiritual, and it wasn't something that uh, anyone really in the mainstream science community felt that science could contribute to. And, you know, decades on from that today, we've got um, all sorts of studies of consciousness that are m- multidisciplinary, that, are, that apply our state-of-the-art knowledge of um, artificial intelligence and neuroscience and genetics and physics to the problems of, uh, of, of, of appreciating what consciousness is. But Edgar was a pioneer in that, and he, um, he pushed that science decades before it was respectable. He was part of this Apollo 14. Now, is, I heard somewhere as well that they had a little bit of kind of trouble actually getting to the surface of the moon, and this is where we hear the story that Shepard apparently called Mitchell Mr. Unflappable. So he must have had some kind of good standing there when, he's, when his nerves... We're at, at the edge. Yeah, I mean, their, 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 their mission was not smooth technically in, 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 at all. I mean, even, um, even as they, um, they, they set off for the moon from lunar orbit and then there's this manoeuvre where um, the command and service module have to come off the top of the rocket, rotate 180 degrees and then go move back towards um, the, the top of the rocket where the lo- lunar module, the lander, is stored dock with it and extract it, pull it out, and then and then carry on to the moon. And um, they even had problems at that stage with the docking mechanism, um, uh, and it took them um, uh, almost two hours and five attempts to properly dock with it, which was daunting and stressful enough because that, that would have aborted the mission completely if they weren't able to do that. And then, as you point out, when they got to the moon, there were problems with the radar and the guidance software on board, which was intermittently receiving false abort signals. Um, and the problem with an abort signal um, made meant that the computer automatically on board would activate um, the ascent engine, which would jettison the bottom of the lunar module and blast the top of it back up to an orbit where they could redock with the command module to come home. Now, that was all fine if they'd landed and done their exploration, but if that happened on the descent... That was also game over, and that they'd have lost their landing. And um, 
as I mentioned, it would probably have jeopardized the future future moon landing missions. The remaining three might have been cancelled. So uh, there was a lot riding on it. And um, these problems that they had, they only had a certain amount of time to fix them. And um, and they were on the far side of the moon out of radio contact once NASA and Houston was working on a solution uh, which they then radioed back to the crew, to, to Alan and Edgar, as they emerged from the far side of the moon. And then they only had a few minutes to type in, without making any mistakes, these changes to the software and to the data that the computer was getting to allow their descent to progress. And, you know, this was years of preparation for, for, for this landing, which was hanging in the balance because of this problem. And as, as Alan describes, Edgar was totally unflappable in that he was trying to enter onto a rather kind of clunky, what was called the disky kind of computer interface, this basic keyboard, nothing like the ones we have today. Um, the, this new data to fix the, fix the problem, all very stressful, but one that Edgar maintained his cool during. What a, what a hero. I'm all right in thinking as well. This was the mission where it's kind of anonymous now, it's anonymous now where Alan Shepard was playing golf on the moon. Well, yes, at the end of their second um, EVA, their second kind of excursion, as it were, the one where they got lost, actually, and frustratingly just missed reaching the edge of Cone Crater, they got back to the lunar module and um, they they just wanted to do a, a few things that were just sort of fun for them. And in fact, Edgar threw a javelin, um, a modified sort of one of the, one of the tools they've been using, um, uh, which is very forgotten because it's overshadowed by the fact, as you say, that Alan Shepard... Um, hit a golf ball on the moon, which he'd sort of taken along in his personal possessions and then got um, uh, a club sort of that he'd modified out of another science tool that he could kind of adapt the end of and and made a a golf swing. Of course, it was very difficult to do in those A7L pressure suits. And so I think um, from memory, he's only got one hand on the um, on the uh, on the on the golf stick, as it were. And he just kind of knocks this ball and then claimed it went miles and miles, which... (laughs) You know, with enough energy, of course, um, in the lower lunar gravity, it might well have, have gone a record distance, but actually I don't think it went very far at all. <laughs> so it wasn't it wasn't a, like a proper golf club. It was a kind of, you know, cobbled together golf club, was it? Kind of, yes. I mean, you, you couldn't justify the weight of taking a, <laughs> a proper golf club with you. It was, um, in a way, bad enough taking the golf ball. But um, so, so he had this this tool sort of adapted um, uh, and so, practiced with it, I think, in his, his own time back on Earth to, to prove he could kind of do it. And then it was just something he wanted to do. And I think, uh, you know, the thing is, you know, all the people that went to the moon sort of did did little personal things, actually. Um uh, and, and Alan's golf stunt, if you like, kind of backfired in a way. Um, I mean, it wasn't, I don't think, sanctioned by NASA before he left. And it was sort of a bit of a surprise when he when he did it. And everybody sort of chuckled at the time. But but then people thought, hang on a minute, you know, this has cost the country a fortune. And these people are just messing about on the moon. And of course, they hadn't been. They'd done two days of really rigorous science in this new um, new area that humans had never explored, but they, this was only a few seconds out of um, two days on the moon. But it still captured the headlines as you'd have expected, and um, and did the Apollo program, you know, no favors in a way. Although looking back, I think now, you know, it's just seen as for what it was, which was an amusing few seconds. 
what's the story then, Chris, about Mitchell in regards to the 2011 when he got caught up in this legal battle with NASA over this plans to auction some sort of camera? Yes, well, I mean, I think it wasn't uncommon for all the Apollo astronauts when they kind of, when they left the program, they just often had a few, you know, mementos in bags and boxes in wardrobes and cupboards at home. And in fact, Neil Armstrong had a, uh, a kind of purse with, with a cloth bag with with various things in as well, which was only found, I think, last year actually, um, and um, and then obviously returned. I think it was sent to the Smithsonian for um, duration. And I think so. Edgar had bits and pieces. In fact, when I was at his house, um, uh, he had um, the joystick control from um, the, the, the lunar module, which, um, he'd crawled back in and, uh, unscrewed and they brought it back to the command module before the, the lunar module was jettisoned in lunar orbit and they came home. And so he just had these bits and pieces and I think, you know, nobody really minded. Um, but then if it came to sort of selling them and many of them, many of the Apollo astronauts, you know, they weren't that well off, um, because, uh, unless you went and became a captain of industry afterwards and, you know, sat on the board of various sort of banks and things and got paid a fortune to some kind of figurehead, which um, Edgar and um, Charlie Duke and Alan Bean, they didn't really do that kind of thing. And Harrison Schmidt, of course, he went into politics instead. So they weren't wealthy people. And so suddenly, I think when the prospect of um, being able to sell some of these artifacts uh, dawned, you know, with the internet age and eBay and stuff, some of them were kind of tempted to do that because they needed the money, sadly. And so... I think that's where that originated. But actually, technically, the stuff's all government property. And so you can't really be seen to be selling it. But, you know, collectors have can buy, you know, Apollo flown um, hardware that's 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 been changing hands over the years now. And I think those things have been relaxed a bit since 2011. Have we got have you got any final words on Edgar Mitchell then, Chris? Well, I mean, I think my my kind of fondest memory of Edgar, I suppose, was was uh, he was the first astronaut that I interviewed for Shadow of the Moon. And when I, I sat down with him, I I prepared very carefully all these kind of notes, I mean, pages and pages of notes on him. I tried to memorise um, all sorts of facts about his life to talk about. And um, and and his one of his first answers steered us straight into these aliens. And he was absolutely... Uh, keen to tell me the story that of, of facts that he knew that we about the fact we'd been visited. That was just his perspective on on that. And um, you know, a good journalist would have said, "Oh, tell me more," and explored that a bit more. And instead, and I will regret this for the rest of my life, I said, "So, Edgar, tell me about the Boy Scouts." <laughs> and the reason I said that was because they'd all almost all the Apollo astronauts had been in the Scouts, and we were interested at the time in this kind of what was it about the Scouts that made all all these scout boy scouts go to the moon, you know, and, and I, I, I was thinking in my head, that's, that's the line I've got to follow here. Forget the aliens. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, honestly, it's been lovely just getting your thoughts. Like I say, you're one of the lucky ones that actually got to meet them as well. You know what I mean? And what a, a, a sad day for humanity, you know, with, with his passing a few, a couple of weeks ago. Yes. He, there is now no one left from Apollo 14 alive. And that's a great pity, of course. Chris, listen, thank you so much again for coming on the Starship Sofa. Oh, it's a great pleasure as always. Nice to be with you. There you go. Thank you, Chris. I'll put a link on the Chris's site as well. And he's just, he just knows so much. And really, like, 
he's been interviewing these guys for a long time. And it, like you say, what Chris says there, it's, it's poignant because there is none of them, you know, Apollo 14 guys left there now. And they kind of they do that, man. They kind of just blast themselves off into space and just true heroes, you know what I mean? Just, um, just a, a, quite staggering, to be quite honest, with what they achieved. And it was lovely to get like a, a, an insight into this one guy. And there's a quote from Edgar Mitchell, and I'll read it out here now because it just kind of, it sums up what they stood for. You develop an instant global consciousness, a people orientation, an intense dissatisfaction with the state of the world, and a compulsion to do something about it. From out there on the moon, international politics looks so petty. You want to grab a politician by the scruff of the neck and drag him a quarter of a million miles out and say, Look at that, you son of a bitch. So we'll push onwards, ever onwards. Next up is the main fiction, and it is... Rights and Wrongs by Brian K. Lowe. I'll give you a little heads up about Rights and Wrongs. This story was originally published in Orson Scott Card's In the Galactic Med- Magic Medicine Show. Brian K. Lowe is a 21st century SF author, author who, judging by his cell phone, still lives in the 20th century. His stories have appeared in, like I say, Orson Scott Card's magazine, Buzz, Buzzy Mag, and numerous times in daily science fiction. He has three self-published novels, The Invisible City in 2013, Once a Night, A Tale of Days and Chivalry, which was a fantasy in 2014, and then The Choking Rain, a thriller in 2014. I'll put a link on to Brian's site. Please pop over there and you know say hello to Brian. Story is narrated by none other than David D. Levine. We've played some stories by David as a Hugo winning, you know, just a, a fantastic author then. He's an amazing narrator as well. David D. Levine is the author of the novel Arabella of Mars, comes out in 2016. I'm not sure if it's out, actually. I know we mentioned it before, but keep an eye out for that one. And over 50 science fiction and fantasy stories. His story, won the Hugo... Yes, I did say that. Won the Hugo Award and has been shortlisted for awards, including the Hugo Nebula Campbell Sturgeon, and his stories appeared all, all over the place, you know what I mean? Asimov's Analog, Fantasy and Science Fiction, and in multiple years, Best of Anthologies, as well as award-winning collection Space Magic from Wheatland Press. David is a contributing to George R. Martin's best-selling Shared World series, Wild Cards. He's also a member of the publishing cooperative Bookview Cafe and of non-profit organisation Oregon Science Fiction Conventions Incorporated. He has narrated podcasts for Escape Pod, Podcastle, and, like I say, our good Starship Sova. And his video, Dr. Talon's Letter to the Editor, was a finest in the Parsec Awards. David lives in Portland, Oregon, with his wife, Kate Yule. The website, daviddlevine.com. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Rights and Wrongs by Brian K. Lowe. Narrated by David D. Levine. Tell me again who I pissed off to get this job. Carefully unwrapping my roast beef on wheat, I used the paper as a holder to keep mustard off of my lap. I thought you wanted the job, Rusty said. I thought you were taking it as some kind of personal challenge. Russ Becker and I ate lunch together almost every day. 
Rusty was another assistant district attorney, and we'd bonded over a mutual disdain for other lawyers. Things being what they were, though, sometimes we got drafted to work the other side, and I'd drawn the short straw here with Rusty as my prosecutor. Hell no, I didn't want it. The Janie killed my parents, Rusty. I had to break into their house and found them on the floor, blood coming out of their ears. I couldn't even bury them. They had to burn down the house with them still inside. I stopped to pull myself together. This is somebody's idea of payback, probably Bertoli. She's still mad at me because she thinks I screwed up the Andelson case. All right, he said. What's done is done. But she's doing you a favor here. Nobody expects you to win this one. Heck, nobody wants you to win this one. The only reason the alien's even getting a trial is because the administration wants to make this look like regular murder instead of another terror attack. It's not like we're pushing for human rights for non-humans here. You sit next to him. I present my case. The judge finds him guilty. They'll be strapping him down for an injection before we can find an open bar. Wait a second, I said, putting up a hand. Are you saying I should throw over the defense? Just phone it in? No, no. I'm saying it's not going to hurt you when you lose. You take one for the team. Bertoli leaves you alone. Good, because I'm going to give that alien son of a bitch the best defense I know how. You're going to have to work to convict. And when you do, and they strap him down and put those needles in him, then we can have that beer. Please put your briefcase on the table. I followed Deputy Berman's instructions, stood back, and stuck my arms out to the side. Another marshal stood by stoically, one hand on his sidearm. Who'd you piss off to get this job anyway, Counselor? I wish I knew. I was just asking somebody that same question. <laughs> Human rights for non-humans. Berman indicated that I should open my case so we could glance inside. It's just nuts. I found my client curled up on his bunk. While he was masquerading as one of us, under the name Edward Kane, he was 5'10", brown hair, prominent chin. Now he was a seven-foot, shimmering silver gumby with large eyes and four-jointed fingers. The guard turned to go. Excuse me, I said. Aren't you going to unlock his cell? He shook his head. Nope. Nobody goes in there unsupervised. I'm not going to interview my client from the hallway. If you go in, I have to stay right here and watch you. We want to be sure the same guy who goes in is the one who comes out, not just the Janie look-alike. He pointed to the upper reaches of the cell. See that? Video, 24-7. I silently counted to ten. Open the door, then get lost. You realize that if he tries something, and we come down here and there are two of you, we have orders to shoot. I hadn't. No one had seen fit to tell me that little factoid, but I wasn't going to back down now. In the end, I got to go inside, but only after another guard was called to witness my decision. Then they left. By then, my client had sat up to watch. My name's William Gaudreau. I'm your court-appointed attorney. I didn't shake hands. What should I call you? You can call me Ed. It's what everybody's called me for the last ten years. I don't think that's a good idea. It sounds like you're still trying to pass for human. He blinked. You couldn't pronounce my name anyway, so let's just leave it. All right, Ed. I want to review the specific charges against you again before your bail appearance tomorrow. I was just talking to the ADA on the case. He's going to seek the death penalty. I didn't kill Dr. Farmer. I'm not asking. But I read the reports. The police found you lying near the body. You had blood on your clothes. It had been raining the night before, and the grass from the garden gate to the lab was wet, but there were no footprints but yours. You and Farmer had a fight. He hit you, but you killed him before he lost consciousness. Sounds like an open-and-shut case. He sighed the way you do when you've told the same story many times already. 
Does that make any sense? Could a man be hit hard enough to lose consciousness but still have the strength to kill his opponent? You're not a man. We don't know what your soldiers might be capable of. I'm not a soldier. I was transport operator. I didn't even get off the ship until right before your people counterattacked and it was sealed off. I couldn't go back, so I tried to blend in. I took a dead man's wallet and got myself a job. Everything was a mess. No one cared who I was. Eventually I met Dr. Farmer. We became friends. I went to his home to see him and found him on the floor. I tried to revive him, and someone hit me. When I woke up, I was surrounded by policemen with big guns all pointed at me. That was when I realized I no longer looked human. So when you hit your head, you lost your ability to control your shape? I keep telling you people, I'm not a shapeshifter. We are not shapeshifters. Then how did you make yourself look human? I can't tell you that. Fine, I'm trying to help you, but if you don't want my help... Right now, the whole world is having a paranoid panic attack because of you. Everybody thought the Janie threat was over 15 years ago, that they were all confined to the camps, and then you show up. Now nobody trusts anybody, and it's all your fault. Because if there's one shapeshifter out there masquerading as a human being, there could be hundreds or thousands waiting to bash our heads in, push people in front of subways, or who knows what. Or drive ice cream trucks through your neighborhoods. I closed my eyes and clenched my fists. Don't say that. Don't ever say that again, or I will personally squeeze your head right through the bars. When I opened my eyes, he was standing up, watching me closely. Why are you mad at me? I didn't drive one of those trucks. It doesn't matter. Your people did. They poisoned children. They started wildfires. They set loose the beta virus. They killed my parents. Ed blinked again. Your parents died in the attack, and you're my lawyer? Everybody lost somebody. He was silent for a moment. I'm sorry about your parents, but what does all that have to do with me and Dr. Farmer? Because nobody cares about you. You're Janie, and they want you dead. Do you have any idea how afraid people are? I'm amazed the Pasadena PD didn't shoot you on sight. To make it worse, Dr. Farmer was working on finding a cure for the beta virus. His daughter has it, but of course you know that. As long as the virus is still infecting people, it's like the invasion is still going on. Finding a Janie next to the dead body of the man who has the best chance of curing the virus, the Janie set loose, just feeds the fears of everyone out there who thinks they could come again, which is everybody. Believe me, if you're found guilty, you'll be dead before I can start the appeals. But maybe we can bargain. Give the government what it wants, the secret to your shape-shifting, and maybe I can get them to take the death penalty off the table. He wouldn't look me in the eye, preferring to stare through the bars behind me. He spoke softly and with utter conviction. You don't care. You're my lawyer, and you want me dead. I don't want to die, and I don't want to live in a camp. Okay, look. Let me explain how privilege works. Anything you tell me about the invasion or about the murder, that's private. That stays between us. But that doesn't extend to illegal acts you may contemplate in the future. If you're planning to escape so you can make a new run at world domination, I have to tell the judge. Ed glanced up at the camera and made an undecipherable genie expression. Then he shook his head. World domination? Please. You never did understand what brought us here. You've spent centuries trying to conquer each other and it hasn't worked. Do you honestly think we could conquer your entire planet with 30,000 troops? We were a raiding party, not an invasion. We were supposed to frighten you, drop down in a few cities, demand tribute, 
heavy metals, maybe some technology. By the time you got an effective resistance going, we'd have taken off with all your stuff and 50,000 slaves to sell. We wouldn't know what to do with your planet if you gave it to us. If I could get out of here, I'd go as far away as possible and drink until I forgot who I was. Could you do that? I asked. Could you maintain a human shape for the rest of your life? He shrugged, as well as a genie could, then he lay down on his bunk and turned toward the wall. I'm going out to Dr. Farmer's house to talk to his daughter. Is there anything you want me to tell her? Ed rolled over. Please tell her I did not kill her father, and tell her I would like her to visit me. I thought about the media frenzy if Regina Farmer came to the jail. Oh yeah, that was going to happen. I was escorted to Dr. Farmer's house by two U.S. Marshals, almost identical in their dark suits, dark glasses, and blank faces. They made me memorize a code word and a countersign, so they could tell the real me from a genie who had made himself look like me, and I could do the same for them. Very cloak and dagger. Dr. Farmer had lived on a narrow tree-lined street in an older section of Pasadena. The house was only two bedrooms, but featured a spacious living room with Japanese screens and woven floor mats instead of rugs. I was told the house was built into a small hill that sloped down in the back, allowing for a basement to be hollowed right out of the earth. That was where Dr. Farmer had done his research, and where they'd found Ed lying next to his body. The house was cool and dark, perfect for a woman with the beta virus. Regina Farmer could not have been more than 25, dark, pretty in a well-padded way. We were just finding that in some people the virus could lie dormant for years, then flare up without warning. Regina was one of those. Her thick glasses, evidence of the virus's optical degeneration, were incongruous on her cheerful face. Thank you for seeing me, I said after she offered me coffee. You didn't have to. No, I wanted to. She poured the coffee using one hand to steady the cup. I wanted to help, but I let her do it. Pretty soon she wouldn't be doing much of anything for herself. She smiled as she handed it to me. The coffee cups are warm and my hands are always cold. I, I know you're busy, Mr. Goudreau, so I won't waste time. As I told the police, I was in my room trying to sleep. It's all I can do sometimes. I, I can't read any more, and even books on tape put me to sleep, she sighed. Of course, pretty much everything puts me to sleep. The virus has sapped all my energy. So you didn't see anyone? You didn't see Ed come over, for instance? Regina shook her head. You don't have to get to the lab through the house. You can reach it from the outside by going around the side of the house from the front gate. So anybody could have come in without me knowing, or without my dad knowing, for that matter. I didn't know Ed was here until the police knocked on my door. It was your gardener who called the police, right? I think so. He didn't say who he was, but it sounded like Jorge's voice on the tape the police played for me. It would have been his day to come by. Jorge Sandoval, she added as I took notes. Why wouldn't he stick around, I asked, though I could guess. Regina put on a guilty face. He's probably illegal. We never checked. Dad didn't care. Suddenly she began to laugh, bit her lip, and wiped her eyes with a napkin. I guess that's pretty ironic, huh? He didn't care about illegal aliens. Did you know Ed was a genie? Regina's shoulders slumped. No, I didn't. But I don't believe he killed my father. Why would he? Did your father have any enemies that you know of? Maybe there was a fight over grant money, something like that? The only fight over money my dad had lately, she said, picking up her coffee, was with Jorge. Jorge, the gardener? Dad wasn't happy with the work he was doing, and Jorge wanted more money for clearing the brush on the fence. 
I didn't think it was that big a deal, but when I went into the kitchen for a glass of water, I heard them arguing outside. But it was cold, so I closed the window, and even then I had to go put on my gloves. Did you tell the police about this? Uh Uh-huh. They wrote it down, and they said they'd talk to him. Interesting. That was the first I'd heard about it. It wasn't unheard of for the prosecution to forget some small item in the reports they turned over to the defense, but when I told Rusty I wasn't planning to go the extra mile for my client, I wasn't giving him permission to sandbag me. I'd have to decide if I wanted to talk to him off the record or take it up with the judge at the bail hearing, but first I wanted to talk to Jorge Sandoval. Regina had given me his phone number, but I preferred not to use my cell in the car where I could be overheard. One of my escorts met me at the closed car door. I stared for a minute. Oh, Gemini, sorry. Libra, he answered, and let me into the car. He got in the front, muttered a few words into his tiny headset radio, and we drove off. I looked straight ahead and tried not to notice the things my client's race had done to my planet, still obvious after more than a decade. Our civilization had been hanging by thin threads, and when spaceships the size of ocean liners appeared, a lot of those threads snapped. We were already halfway to a hysterical breakdown when the plagues started. For a month, we thought the aliens were just sitting up there and watching us die, out of reach of anything we could throw at them. Then the CDC and the WHO calculated disease vectors and infection rates and realized that the germs were still being spread from down here. The genie were already on the ground, using their bioweapons right in our midst. The rumors started. How could aliens be operating on Earth without someone helping them? The U.S. accused the Koreans, the Chinese accused the Russians, and then they landed— tanks, aircraft, waves of infantry, all looking completely human. When the enemy looked like us, no one was safe. Suspicion swelled to violence within hours. Neighbor attacked neighbor without any provocation. Entire blocks went up in flames. Barring a miracle, civilization had about a week to live. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Thank heaven the Russians were no longer atheists, because that's where we got our miracle. They'd been waiting the moment the aliens came down and showed themselves. 
The Kremlin had uncovered a Janice sleeper agent soon after 9-11 and had plenty of time to develop a specialized bioweapon of their own. The Geneve fell back, but their ships took off, leaving thousands of their own to the tender mercies of the human race. Most were taken up quickly by the military, but the killings and the lynchings of aliens went on for months. Eventually, exhausted, the violence burned itself out. We mourned our dead, and after ten years we thought we were over it. Then they found Ed on the floor next to Dr. Farmer's body. My reverie was interrupted when my driver slammed on the brakes, jerking me forward, slamming me into the front headrest. It was padded, but it still hurt. One marshal was mumbling rapidly into a microphone. The driver was backing us up, one hand on the wheel, the other holding a pistol so large I wondered where he had hidden it. There was always a small knot of photographers and cameramen in front of my place, but they'd been just a nuisance, as if I'd been a TV star or something. This crowd was bigger, not sporting cameras, and chanting. They were also moving toward us. No, justice for aliens! No, justice for aliens! Are they demanding or complaining, I wondered, but I wasn't about to get out of the car and ask them. A rock starred the windshield, and my escorts had had enough. The car went into full retreat without the driver ever turning to look over his shoulder. Had this been the old days, we'd have been killed, but there was little traffic and we stayed in reverse for two blocks before we spun around to face the right way. By then the sound of approaching sirens was almost on top of us, but the crowd had been left behind. The Fourth Amendment wasn't written with alien shapeshifters in mind. This is a world the Founding Fathers couldn't even conceive of. Whatever happened to strict constructionism? The Founders couldn't conceive of airplanes either, but you don't see us changing the Constitution to accommodate them. That's exactly what I'm saying. Look at full-body scans. They're an example of exactly the kind of search that I'm talking about, and you go through those every time you want to board an airplane. These people were giving me a headache. I'd only turned into this news station because, according to everything I'd been able to piece together, that's where the trouble had started. It had taken the marshals hours to find someplace to stash me, and it felt as though I had been run all over town. I didn't even have a toothbrush. Somebody was out buying one for me. All I had was my briefcase, and I was too tired to study Ed's file. But since I couldn't go to bed yet, like I was going to be able to sleep, I turned on the TV in hopes of finding out why that crowd had come after me. So far I hadn't, but there was plenty else going on. All right, everybody, pleaded the talking head host, making calming gestures with his hands as though he hadn't been the one to stir up the argument in the first place. He turned to the token liberal, a law professor from UCLA, who was not only the sole woman, but the only person on the panel appearing by satellite. Miss Thurston, when we come back, I'll give you a chance to talk. But now, before our break, I want to take this opportunity to update any viewers of The Ray Avery Show who just came in and don't know about today's developments. Given that the delivery of cable television was still spotty in many areas, he really was performing a valuable service for once. This afternoon in Los Angeles, William Gaudreau, defense attorney for the Janine terrorist and murder suspect who insists on going by the name Edward Kane, was met by a crowd of angry patriots on his way back to his home in Pasadena. There followed footage of the crowd and the car approaching then speeding away backward. The crowd had been larger than I thought. I shivered. No one was hurt in the incident, and police arrived a few minutes later to disperse the demonstrators. Demonstrators? They looked more like rioters from my point of view. As of tonight, police remain on the scene, but Mr. Gaudreau has not returned. We have unconfirmed reports that he has gone into hiding, but we do not know where. We were, however, able to obtain a statement from this man who was on the scene. A 19-year-old kid wearing an earring with a Superman S tattoo on his cheek appeared on screen. 
I was watching TV tonight, and the guy on Global News said the, the lawyer for that alien lived in Pasadena, and maybe a few of us should get together and talk to him about sticking with his own kind instead of the Jannies. So me and Ronnie, me and him decided to come down here and talk to this guy. And there was a whole bunch of other people here, and then we saw the car coming, and we figured it must be him. So there was some yelling and stuff, but he didn't get out of the car, and then they just drove away. He looked off camera for a second and waved to someone out of range. So we hung around a while, and then you guys showed up. Ray Avery came back on camera. After the break, we'll replay the segment from this afternoon's coffee break with Marnie Krieger that the witness was just talking about, and you can judge for yourself. I ground my teeth through a blur of commercials about finding a dentist house selling gold had gotten so many through the recent troubles, and the great real estate deals now available in such widespread and formerly congested areas as St. Louis, Portland, Oregon, and Augusta, Georgia. By the time they ended, my back ached from leaning forward. For the coffee break tape, Avery didn't bother with an introduction. We fought a war with these people, for heaven's sake, a tall African-American woman was saying. The clip identified her as a law professor from NYU. Lots of work for law professors on TV these days. A war on American soil. He's a spy and he doesn't deserve due process. He's not a spy, one of the men railed at her. He's a political prisoner. You of all people should understand. Why? The woman shot back. Because I'm black? Are you saying that just because he doesn't look like you? I should identify with him? Wait, wait, interrupted another woman. She was quickly identified on screen as Marnie Krieger, the host. We're getting off topic here. I'm sure Mr. Bear didn't mean that the way it sounded. The camera flashed to the black woman who looked to have her own opinion and the man who fidgeted and looked guilty. The question is, it's one thing to defend a murderer, but how does any human being find it in his heart to defend a murderer and a terrorist, not just a religious terrorist or a survivalist, but a terrorist from another planet, someone who helped kill that person's own parents? I froze, the blood rising in my face, but it got worse. Maybe he just believes in the rule of law, the fidgety guy began, but he was cut off. Well, what I like to know cut in the third woman, a tall, sharp-featured blonde. First, did he really lose his parents in the war? And second, how do we know he is a human being? The resulting uproar was lost as Ray Avery stopped the tape and brought the audience back to his own discussion, but I weakly pointed the remote in the direction of the screen and managed somehow to press off. I jumped at a knock on the door. Through the peephole I saw one of the marshals. He must have seen the window darken because he leaned in and said, Gemini. I pulled open the door and grabbed the toothbrush and supplies he brought me. Libra, I snapped, and slammed the door. It would serve those narrow-minded idiots right if I actually got Ed acquitted. I called Jorge Sandoval's number early the next morning, figuring that a gardener would be up before the sun. It was quickly apparent that while Jorge might speak English well enough to get jobs and argue with his clients, the rest of his household did not share his ability. I was about to dig into my college Spanish when a girl came on the phone. From the sound of her voice, she must have been about eight. Hello, can I speak to Jorge? She started sniffling, and I was afraid she was going to cry. My, my daddy's not here. The immigration took him away. Immigration? I repeated stupidly. When? Last night. Then I heard some rapid Spanish in the background, and the line went dead. Son of a bitch. Jorge Sandoval had been picked up by the ICE right out of the blue. What the hell was going on? All rise. This court is now in session. Judge Harley Roddick presiding. Judge Roddick looked like the flinty Lord Justice in one of those old British movies where the judge puts on his black cap before he sentences the innocent defendant to death, an injustice that indirectly results in the hero embarking on a life of piracy. My client was far from innocent. His days of piracy were a matter of record. 
If Judge Roddick was flinty and prone to hanging, Ed's long-term outlook was bleak. Today, however, I was looking to make Rusty Becker's outlook a little bleaker. We were the first matter on the docket. Mr. Gaudreau, you wish to be heard on the matter of bail? Your Honor, my client has been remanded without bail. He has no prior criminal record. We would request a more reasonable bail be granted. If it please the court, Rusty said. The people will be seeking capital punishment in this matter, and we believe the defendant's flight risk is extremely high. We would oppose any bail. Bail is denied. Anything else? I swallowed. This was exactly the kind of motion I hadn't been planning to make, but the government's high-handedness gave me no choice. Your Honor, the defendant renews his plea for bail on the grounds that he is not safe in custody. I have reason to believe the people are withholding evidence and have tampered with a witness. There was a long moment of electric silence. In my chambers. So you think it went well today? I sighed and shook my head. Yeah, I guess. Rusty argues that there was no way to know that Jorge was the one who called the cops. But when I said Regina could testify it was his day to come in, the judge had to agree with us. He ordered Jorge to be brought in so I can question him. But Jorge's being held by the feds, if he's still in the country at all. If they say they've already sent him back to Mexico or El Salvador or wherever, then we're done. Ed sat very still on his bunk. I guess I shouldn't have expected anything else. I threw his file to the floor. Yes, you should, damn it, and so should I. I'll be straight with you, Ed. If I weren't your defense attorney, I'd be happy as shit to see you fry. But God damn it, I am your lawyer, and now they've made me mad. Ed actually looked at me. What's going on? You were never this interested in defending me before. I chopped the air with my hand. That was then. This is now. A lot of people want you to be guilty. I can handle that. But now they're trying to make you guilty, and that's over the line. I started to pace in the small area. They've made a tactical mistake. As long as Jorge Sandoval isn't available to testify for us, he isn't available to testify against us either. And we can put him at Dr. Farmer's house near the time of the murder. That's called reasonable doubt. But they've already made a witness disappear. Who knows what else they might try. If you start making trouble, like you said, nobody wants me to walk out of there after the trial. I nodded like one of those drinking bird toys. I did, and they did. But they don't want to execute you for terrorism. They want it to be for simple murder. And for that, they need some legal cover. I won't sugarcoat it. Even if I can get you off, you'll still go to the camps. But if I can dig up enough to undermine Rusty's case, the judge may have to acquit you at least of murdering Dr. Farmer. I picked up a notepad and pen. Okay, let's get started. What exactly were you doing at Dr. Farmer's house that day? We were friends. Yeah, I know. But why did you go there that particular day? Wasn't he working? No answer. Ed, this isn't going to work if you don't help me. I can't. It was a secret. What do you mean? You can't. Why can't you? You want to die instead? Better me than you. You've already treated me better than anyone else ever has. I'm not going to turn on you now that you've finally decided to go to bat for me. I stared at him like he was deranged. What the hell are you talking about? For a moment I thought he was going to refuse to answer. Can I borrow your notepad? I need to diagram the crime scene. I handed it to him, then stood over him as he began to write quickly. I didn't realize it at the time, but he'd arranged us so our backs were to the camera. I think the cell is bugged, he wrote. I started to protest that eavesdropping on our conversations was illegal, that it would blow the entire prosecution sky high, but nothing came out. They'd suborned Rusty, they'd gotten to Jorge Sandoval, 
They had me spouting secret codes like James Bond. The world post-invasion was not what it had been. Oh, I see, I said nonchalantly. So you were here? I took the pencil from him as though I were making notes. Why were you there? I wrote. We had an argument, he wrote back. Dr. Farmer wasn't working on a cure for the beta virus. He was trying to weaponize it. I felt the floor slipping away from under my feet. My world shrank to a small disk of light surrounded by blackness. The genie had devastated the earth with plagues and bioweapons. Now my own government wants to create its own genie plagues for its own use? The mere rumor would incite worldwide rioting. The government is petrified the Russians already have something, because they were the ones who stopped us, and they have a huge head start, he whispered so low I could barely hear him even with our heads together. When I met Dr. Farmer, he told me he was working on the beta virus vaccine. After we became friends, I told him who I was, so I could help him. But he figured that weapons are easier to make than cures, and the government will pay a lot of money for them. And you figured it out? Dr. Farmer was a scientist. He talked too much. I think he thought I'd appreciate what he was doing, me being an alien monster, after all. We had an argument, and I left. But I didn't want to leave it like that, so I went back to talk to him, and I found him on the floor. I knelt down next to him, and someone hit me. I woke up with ten cops on top of me. I was still trying to wrap my brain around what he was telling me. I believed him. It made sense. It explained everything. Unfortunately, it still doesn't do us any good. All it does is give you another motive. Ed's trial came with wicked speed. Before I knew what I was in for, I'd agreed to the government's request for a quick trial, and now I was paying for it. It didn't help that the marshals moved me every two days to a new hotel, ushering me in through service entrances wearing a hat and dark glasses. I didn't have time to watch TV, so I didn't know if it was really necessary or just another of their tricks. On the other hand, I had a very sparse defense, and it wasn't going to get stronger. Dr. Farmer and Ed had both been attacked with a $6,000 microscope that their assailant had picked up at the scene. It bore their DNA, but no fingerprints other than Dr. Farmer's. Since Janie don't have fingerprints, the cop claimed that was evidence Ed had used it to kill Dr. Farmer. From Ed's wounds, I would argue that this scenario made no sense, but I couldn't seem to hire an expert for any amount of money. Every time they heard who my client was, they either found a conflict or just hung up. Of course, there were no witnesses. Jorge Zandoval's trail was stone cold. Regina Farmer offered what help she could, but it wasn't a lot. Security was so tight that even with my escort I was late getting into the courtroom, but Judge Roddick didn't comment. I had the distinct impression that he'd been run through a few scanners himself. Even with the heavy security, the packed courtroom made me nervous. Rusty agreed with my request to waive opening statements. I didn't want to give up everything before I even started. The judge was surprised, but probably pleased, and we proceeded straight to the prosecution's witnesses, which meant the cops who found Dr. Farmer dead and had sprawled next to his body blood on his shirt which they calmly and meticulously described one after another. I asked each of them if they had noticed anything about the scene that had not gone into the official reports. Each said no, and that was that, eight times over. I had a little more leeway with the crime techs who tried to recreate the scene. Can you point out, I asked, where my client was struck on his body? The tech obliged me by using his laser pointer to indicate where his report, mounted on an easel, showed a gash on Edward's head behind one ear. Isn't that indicative of a blow from behind? Not the kind of injury you would receive in a face-to-face fight? I can't answer that. I don't know how Geneve fight. 
I fixed him with a stare, sensing weakness. But in your professional experience, aren't injuries sustained in a fight, typically to the face, not the back of the skull, as would be the case if the victim were hit from behind by an unknown assailant? Objection, Rusty said loudly. The question is compound, and the witness has already testified that he is not an expert on Genie hand-to-hand combat techniques. Your Honor, Dr. Farmer was a 49-year-old research scientist. If the prosecution is going to argue that he struck such a serious blow against an opponent trained in hand-to-hand combat, then the people's case will hold even less water than it does now. Judge Roddick frowned at Rusty before he spoke. The people were using a term of art, which they will refrain from repeating. The objection is sustained. Your Honor, if I can't challenge the people's expert, I don't have a lot to work with. The objection is sustained. Move along, Mr. Gaudreau. The audience cheered. In the end, the prosecution had no witnesses and nothing to rebut my client's claim that he came on the body after death. I was not naive enough to think that mattered. I wanted to put Ed on the stand, but I was afraid of what Rusty might get him to say. Our one chance was if I could use Regina Farmer to establish that there had been another person present with motive to kill her father and create reasonable doubt. In other words, we were screwed. Regina looked nervous as she took the stand. At my suggestion, she was wearing her thickest glasses, and she seemed to have some trouble mounting the step to the box. After the initial surprise at her summons, the courtroom was silent. I covered the preliminaries gently but swiftly. Miss Farmer, can you tell us what you saw and heard on the morning of April 3rd of this year, the day your father died? I was asleep in my room when the gardener woke me with his leaf blower. He always comes out early Fridays, and he wakes me up. My father had spoken to him about it, but Jorge always said he would try to be quiet, but never changed. Uh, That would be Jorge Sandoval? Yes. Did you see Mr. Sandoval that day? No. Have you seen him since? No. I heard he's been deported. Objection. Sustained. Please stick with what you know, Miss Farmer. Now, did anything happen after you got up? I was in the kitchen getting some breakfast, she said carefully, looking at the judge as I'd suggested earlier. The kitchen window was right over the basement where my father had his laboratory. I was going to close it because the house was cold. I heard him arguing with someone. It was Jorge. They were arguing about his leaf blower again. My father was getting upset, not just because of the noise waking me up, but because he had to interrupt his work to speak to Jorge about it. And did Jorge answer or argue back? Yes. He was angry about some work my father wanted him to do on the back fence, but my father wouldn't pay for more men. She smiled weakly. My father was a bit of a tightwad. The audience chuckled. Did you hear anything else? Anything to suggest there might be violence? Objection. Calls for speculation. That one was sustained, too, but I'd made my point. I turned her over to Rusty, who approached. Good morning, Miss Farmer. Please accept my condolences on the loss of your father. And I also understand you're not well. If there's anything we can do to make you more comfortable, please ask, but I won't be keeping you long. Regina smiled and reached into her purse for a tissue, which she used to wipe her eye. Miss Farmer, did you hear the tape of the 911 call to the police that morning? Yes. And was that caller, in your opinion, Jorge Sandoval? I assume you're familiar with his voice, he added hastily. Regina shrugged. I couldn't say. That wasn't what she told the police, but Rusty let it go. Miss Farmer, does it make any sense to you that if Mr. Sandoval had had a fight with your father, as the defense seems to be implying, that he would then call the police to report his own crime? Objection! Rusty turned around to glance at me. Turnabout was fair play. His question was stricken, as mine had been, but he'd made his point, too. 
He sat down. Mr. Gaudreau, redirect. One moment, Your Honor. Regina's remarks made me think back to the morning of the murder. It had been raining the night before. How cold had it been? Cold enough to affect the temperature of the body? Could the time of death be wrong? I got up and slowly approached the witness stand, my mind on whether I should recall the crime scene tech. Miss Farmer, uh, you said you heard your father arguing with Mr. Sandoval that morning, correct? Yes, when I went into the kitchen. That's when I heard them. But then I closed the window. Of course, you closed the window because it was cold. I retreated a step, and I must have lost track of a few seconds because Judge Roddick called me back to the present. Mr. Gaudreau, do you have any more questions for the witness? Yes, Your Honor, I replied automatically, but I was thinking about something else. I was thinking about who was lying, who was covering up, and who had killed Dr. Farmer. Regina, did the air smell nice after the rain? She stared at me a moment. Yes. Your Honor, Rusty called, is Mr. Gaudreau going somewhere with this weather report? I ignored him. But you had on your gloves, because the house was so cold. She took her time answering. Yes, yes I did. So you were already wearing your gloves when you heard your father and my client arguing through the window? No, I said I heard my father and Jorge. And since you were wearing your gloves, when you hit your father over the head with a microscope, you didn't leave any fingerprints. And by using the back stairs from the house to get to the lab, you didn't leave any footprints on the grass. I don't... I, what are you talking about? She fumbled for her tissue. Regina, does Jorge usually cut the grass when it's wet? I didn't wait for an answer. You didn't know it had rained all night, did you? You thought he'd been there, because it was his day to come. So when you had to call the police, you imitated his voice. I lowered my voice so I wouldn't be heard in the gallery. You heard Ed and your father arguing about his research, and you realized he wasn't working on a cure like he told you. Even though you have the beta virus yourself. That's why you killed him, wasn't it, Regina? She stared at me a long moment and collapsed into tears. Judge Roddick lost no time in clearing the courtroom. This case is dismissed, Judge Roddick intoned stonily. However, I am imposing a gag order. No one is to speak to the press or anyone else regarding Ms. Farmer's testimony. The defendant is remanded to custody until he can be transferred to a federal holding facility. I'd saved Ed's life, but lost his freedom. He turned to me. I need to speak to you. The marshals were already bringing the shackles. Back off, I said. He's still my client, and I promise he's not going anywhere. I glared until they retreated. I wanted to thank you, he said, more loudly than needed, and clasped my hand. He pulled away, leaving a small object in my palm. Keep this, he whispered. It burrows under the skin. It's solar-powered and activated by your brain's electrical impulses. It will work for you. Questions bubbled up through my throat, tangling until none could get out. I had no doubt what it was. The secret of the genie. I finally whispered, Why? I can't use it any more. But you might need it. You know things you're not supposed to. But I'm not going to say anything. They know that. You trust them. But do you trust them to trust you? I thought about a government that would try to weaponize Genie viruses in secret. I thought about how Ed's cell had been bugged. I thought of people like Rusty who tried to get me to throw the case, and the talking heads on TV who weren't even sure I was human, and the protesters outside my house who wanted to teach me to stand with my own kind. Who did I piss off to get this job? Everybody. 
The judge wasn't going to be able to keep this secret. Soon people were going to start asking questions about why Regina had killed her father. Questions would lead to speculation. Speculation would lead to rumors. And we'd already seen what rumors could lead to 15 years ago. Although Ed's gift felt like a loaded gun in my hand, I slipped it into an inside pocket. I'd better go talk to the prosecutor about your transfer. I'll try to see you later. And I let them take him away. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Brian K. Lowe. Brian, thank you so much for letting me have that story. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And David, I owe you a couple of pints, I'm sure, by now. Easy, easy. Thank you so much. I forgot to mention as well, links for Fiction Crawler 16, Matthews. I put links on the site as well, so you can pop over there and check out all the links. So we're into kind of the last home straight. And it's an interview I did with Salvatore Chirino, who is a marine mammal biologist. And I, I heard this story about this kind, this whale, you know, we yet to kind of discover it. And Sal has, you know, done that, done that very job and discovered this whale. And I just wanted to kind of, like you say, we live on this planet, you know, with science fiction, we, you know, this is what we are on this show. And yet... You know, and we always like looking out. Sometimes we just have to look in and th- there's so much we don't even know yet on our little own blue planet. So, Sal, tell us exactly, you know, what you've found. So, working in Madagascar for the last uh, 10 years or so, I've studied a number of different um, cetacean species, that's whales and dolphins. And... Um, as part of this work, we're just discovering and describing the diversity of species that are um, that found off the coast of Madagascar, and which is an area that hasn't really been studied very well. And to our surprise, we found um, a species of whale that uh, was only recently described and discovered, and um, it's called the Amora's whale. And it was a pretty profound discovery because so little is known about the species. And uh, my team was basically the first team globally to be able to study this species as well. Now, Sal, I've heard that it was only really 2003 when the kind of Japanese researchers, you know, discovered this dead specimen. Is that the first time, honestly, we've kind of discovered these, we are new about these whales? So the 2003 mark is the publication of the paper that described them as a new species. And that was done by this Japanese research team. And um, that Japanese research team had um, first realized that these whales were uh, different um, back in the early 90s. Um, And it comes from specimens that were taken in actually giant Japanese scientific whaling on a different species called the Brutus whale and of some um, in the 1970s of some 300 specimens that they had uh, eight of them turned out to be something different and they labeled them pygmy Brutus whales and then started to realize that they were genetically quite different. And then in the late nineties, 1998 or so there was a stranding of a whale that was thought to be a Brutus whale in the south of Japan. Um, and that matched these specimens from um, the 
other sites, which were, were actually the Solomon Islands and the Cocos Keeling Islands in the uh, East Indian Ocean. Um, and at that point, they um, discovered, well, they published the paper and convinced the community, the scientific community, that these were, in fact, a very different species. They weren't Brutus whales. When did you then cells you know become aware of them you know when did you start t- doing like for professional ones yeah the, the ones you've, you've kind of discovered we discovered them off of the northeast coast no, excuse me the north we discovered them off of the northwest coast of madagascar and um this was quite a surprise because they had never been documented in the western indian ocean They had only been documented from um, these whaling specimens and then strandings um, in several several places around the South Pacific and the East Indian Ocean. Um, So when we realized that the animals we were seeing off of uh, northwest Madagascar were in fact Amora's whales, we were quite surprised. And that was in uh, 2000, well, we first started to see them in 2011. We didn't realize what they were until 2013. That's right, because I was, I've was i read where you thought there were a species called, um, I might get this wrong, is it Brides whales? It's um, pronounced Brutus whale. Oh, the B-R-Y-D-E, is that pronounced? <laughs> yes, yeah, I think that's it's the Scandinavian pronunciation. Right, right. Brutus whale, yeah. yeah. What I'm, we talked about a little bit this about this before though, Sal. Is why do we know so little about them? You know, when I can sit in my armchair here and watch everything in like glorious HD. Do you know what I mean? From all these researchers all over the world sure. and all these programs. Yeah. Why? Why are we like that? Well, first of all, the species that they originally thought they were the Brutus whale is also very poorly known, very poorly understood. This is a tropical whale that occurs um, pretty much globally um, and is there's so little known about that species that it's very confusing as to how many different groups or types of Brutus whales there are. Um, So uh, this animal is probably more rare than Brutus whales, although we don't really know. And also it was, it's, it's similar in appearance very superficially Um, and without knowing that there was a different species they, every time they've been sighted, they've pretty much been oh, likely been confused with Brutus whales. But, you know, a big, a big part of it is that you're talking about a tropical species that exists, that range in areas that tend to be pretty remote and in areas of the world that are not very developed. Are they just uh, located in that one area? Um, they are, well, both with Brutus whales and Amora's whales, that they are they're likely um resident species so probably uh various populations spread across their range that tend to be small um, and resident um, and these are still questions waiting to be answered but they 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 seem not to be long distance migrators like other baleen whales that we're familiar with and and uh, related whales in the, the rockwell family which almost all are um, are migrators that migrate between uh, high latitude uh, feeding grounds and low latitude breeding grounds. These guys, the Morris whales and and the Brutus whales, are uh, seem to be 
uh, spend all of their time in tropical waters and are probably pretty resident to relatively local areas. Can you just describe, as best you can, Sal, what one looks like? Because I've heard, which is an unusual thing, one side of the body is lighter than the other side. Is that right? Right, right. yes. This is what's kind of extraordinary about these animals. So they're, they're relatively small whales. They're about 10 meters long, um, 10 to 12 meters. Um, and this puts them in um, a, a lineup of these rorqual whales, uh, somewhere between minkies, which are the smallest of the whales, and the brutus whales, which are slightly um, larger. Um, and rorquals in general are very, or tend to be um, very long and streamlined uh, shaped baleen whales, you know, ranging from the blue whale, which is the largest, um, to the minke whale, which is the smallest of the rorquals. Um, and their body shape is generally very similar down the line. What's extraordinary about Amoras is their pigmentation pattern. Um, and they have an asymmetric pigmentation, which is quite rare, um, with the the lower jaw, the right side being white or very lightly pigmented, and the left side being dark. And um, this is similar only to a, a much larger rorqual species called the fin whale, but it's distinctly different from the brutus whale, which is symmetrical. It's dark on both sides. And an, another, spe- another, another aspect of their pigmentation that's quite spectacular is on the right side, they have a wash of white pigmentation, um, both on the head, just the head of the eye and behind the eye, which is we call the blaze, and then on the flank and the side called the chevron. And these patterns are um, actually quite beautiful with uh, dark stripes running through a white wash and, and a swirl that makes them um, a quite beautiful animal. Do we know anything else about them or are they pretty elusive to kind of you know, I know you know you you know where they are, but are they pretty elusive to f- to find? And once you find them, how do you know? How do you, can you keep on monitoring them and, and looking after? Or not looking after them, but kind of just getting more information about them. How are they hard to find once you you know where they are? They are quite elusive and range wide. They appear to be difficult to find probably because the populations exist in fairly remote regions. Um, and this is another special thing about the work in Madagascar that we're doing. So what, what we've been able to do um, is we found a population that's accessible. Um, and it's in an area where we, we've worked before and we can conduct work. So what that means is that we can go out into the range where this specific population exists and lives and does its thing um, and find them. And we've been so far fairly lucky in that we can find them on a regular, reliable basis. Um, that means we can actually study them, which is, you know, apart from having found and being able to describe the species that no one's described before, the other exciting part is that it's a population that we can actually study and that is um, not to be taken lightly because marine mammals, you know, whales, and oceanic whales are very difficult to study just because they, they live in the ocean and we live on land. Um, and they're not very often 
Uh, many species are not anywhere near land, and they're very difficult to study. Well, I'm fascinated, you know, when you say you go out there and you kind of, you've got an idea where they are, are you using any, say, technology to find them, you know, or is it just by chance you, you come across them because you know they're in that certain area? Do you tag them or anything, or is that not allowed now? Well, once once you've, once you've um, done some initial surveys and initial work and you get an idea of where to find them, you can go out in small boats and um, you just find them by sight, and that's what we do. Um, uh, we're still learning a lot about them. We're still learning what their, uh, season, if there's any seasonality in their sightings, but for the, the work that we've been doing for the last three years and we've been there, um, only in, in certain months of the year. So we don't know what it's like full, um, across the whole year. We go out on a small boat and we look for them and when we find them, we go up and we, and we do our work and we're taking, um, we're doing photographs, taking photographs to, um, uh, document the pattern, the individually specific pattern, and we're creating a catalog of individuals. We take biopsies with a, a small dart to get skin um, skin samples for genetic analysis, and we're doing um, uh, recordings, uh, getting recordings of their vocalizations, um, both from a boat and also from recorders that we put on the bottom in the habitat that they live in so that we record them remotely over um, long periods of time. And um, through that, we're learning quite a bit about them right now. Um, uh, much of it is described in the, the work I've just recently published in uh, 2015, and there's more still coming in about their um, the, the distribution, the, their what they do, their behavior, um, their vocal behavior, uh, they, they seem to be singing, which is very exciting. Um, there, we have documentation of mothers and calves so that they, and small calves, so they appear to be, uh, uh, reproducing in the same area. Um, we're learning about their feeding ecology, um, what they're feeding on and, um, basically a lot of fundamental things about their natural history. Other quite shy sal you know what i'm just wondering what they're like when you know humans turn up on them do they kind of scatter away or they're quite you know happy just to let you prod them and you know take notes on them well it, it varies quite a bit um i think probably related to what they're doing at the time and often and this goes for many species of whales when they're feeding they tend to be pretty tolerant and oblivious to what's going on around them where at other times they might be sensitive and, um, uh, and evasive of boats. Um, and it probably also has to do with individuals, individuals, individual whales have different personalities and some have, some might be more, um, uh, evasive or frightened or gregarious and curious. Do you, do you know how many there are in the world? Or is that a question, like a $64 million question? We have no idea how many animals there right, are. Right, right. Um, and one of the things I hope to do for the Madagascar work is actually define how many whales there are in that population. And that will give an idea of what the, the what a population of Amora's whales looks like. Is it only tens of animals? Is it hundreds of animals? Or is it thousands of animals? We really don't know yet. And indications are that it's probably relatively small, um, you know, relatively small group of animals. When it is, 
a small group like that, that or we think it's a small group, what are su- survival chances? Do you know what I mean? Did, will they just carry on, you know, in a little small group because, you know, mankind doesn't kind of get involved? Or is it a pretty slim chance that these, these species will, you know, carry on? Well, that's that's another really, that's a very good question related to um, you know, the fact that we have no idea how many animal how many there are at globally or even in single populations. We know very little about the conservation status of these animals, um, and whenever you find yourself in a situation where um, there's very little information about a species. That's good reason to be careful and concerned about the conservation status of the animal, um, particularly in in oceans that in areas where there may be impacts from um, anthropogenic impacts from human activities, uh, such as um, habitat degradation due to um, development, coastal development, or interactions with fisheries, entanglement, um, and bycatch or uh, harassment or uh, disturbance from anthropogenic noise, such as um, shipping and um, oil and gas exploration. So these are all things that really need to be considered um, and watching these, you know, learning more about the populations and could they be disturbed. Um, So a lot of fundamental things that we still need to, to discover yet. So last question then, Sal. I mean, what happens now? You know, you know, on a personal note, are you going back to Madagascar or? Uh, actually, I just returned from Madagascar about a month ago um, in uh, uh, pretty much a third field season where we were focused on this. And um, there are recorders out there right now recording um, the presence of these animals. So we hope to, for that given um, area and population try to define what the if there is a seasonality um, and learn more about their singing behavior um, try to assess the the size of the population and learn more about their feeding ecology which is also very interesting because these are these are animals that are uh, appear to be um, exclusively tropical in the tropics is a very difficult place for uh, an animal the size of a whale to make a living because they're not very highly productive waters. Um, and a good part of what we're doing is trying to figure out what they're eating um, and how they sustain sustain themselves on uh, on the food that they, they can find there. Well, Sal, it's been lovely to have you on. Just to kind of, uh, just get a glimpse into this world. Like I say, you know, going back to one of my earlier questions, you know, we sit here in our little kind of shells and everything was brought to us via the television in HD quality. And yet there's things as big as wheels that we kind of hardly yes. ever know. It's so like exciting, I think that. Yes, it's, it's quite, it's quite remarkable. That Sal, it's just fascinating to be quite honest, man. Do you know what I mean? Just. Just like you say, knowing that these wheels are there and we didn't have a clue really about and we still don't. Do you know what yeah. I mean? We don't so we don't even yeah. know what the, the things eat. And they're well this is one of the things we're Sal, what are you doing, man? You should be back out there. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm hoping to raise funds to do it. You know, this is one of the, the things that, about the work that we do. It's constantly in a um 
in a, a, a search for funding. It's it's difficult to find funds for this. See, I was, it's funny. I was going to ask you that, but I thought I better not kind of go down the kind of the money route. But I'm just wondering, you know, who who is paying for this? Do you know what I mean? Kind of because you must there must be a big or a a few years going out as a team and kind of yeah so this the work that i just completed is funded well the the field work that i just completed was funded by the marine mammal commission so it's the united states government um agency the uh, that's their purpose is to you know fund marine mammal research and conservation and although they're f- mostly focused in the united states and united states waters they have an international program and given that this particular project was so special. I mean, you know, they, they, it fits in, it fit into their mandate. Um, but right now, I'm I'm actually this is, has relevance to what you're doing. Um, I'm hoping to develop a crowdsource uh, funding effort um, and try to publicize that and see if I can bring uh, donations in. I don't know if that's something that you might be interested in attaching to this. Oh, Salman, honestly, like, of course. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, what I'll do then, I'll just let this, I'll play this little bit as well. Do you know what I mean? Because, like I say, I was going to kind of just edit it there, but you, it's surprising, you know, like, say, crowdfunded things, they take off, you know what I mean? Especially something like this where it's just, right. you know, it's it's almost it's almost something brand new in the world. Do you yep, know what yep, I mean? yep, 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 yeah. And um, um, it, the press that we got last last year when the when, in the end of the year in November kind of took me by surprise because the paper came out on what October fifteenth, and within two weeks I was back in Madagascar, and during that time, right before I left, we got these press releases out on the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution and the New England Aquarium websites. And then the, the other press outlets just started picking up on it and it spread really quickly. So that was really exciting. Now what I'm, I'm hoping I can do at this point, now that I'm, you know, I've only been back a week from uh, after holiday travel, but um, I'm hoping that I can try to orchestrate another um, a sort of pulse of, of media attention. Um, and I, I just spoke with uh, um the the uh, National Geographic um, website uh, editor last yesterday she, she did an interview and they're going to do a piece on National Geographic and um, there's your piece and then there's probably a couple others uh, on the IUCN website so what I hope to do is try to time these to come out roughly around the same time um, if that's possible for you guys. Oh, it certainly is for me. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, you just kind of, if you tell us the week, that because we come out, we come out on a Wednesday. So any, okay, any Wednesday, do you know what I mean? It, it doesn't matter, you know, when sure it is, so. but certainly we'll kind of link to you and stuff like that. And so what, what I wanted, um, I have a Facebook page already that is out there, but it hasn't, I haven't really, um, pushed it yet, tried to publicize it yet because it's not quite ready. But what I want to do is get the, this, the, the, the Facebook page up and running and have um, a blog going and also links to um, donations and funding, uh, maybe a, a, one of these organized crowdsource 
um, uh, crowdfunding uh, sites. Oh yeah, yeah, I mean, honestly, like you see a, a blog, you know, with photographs, like kind of regular photographs, man, just so we can kind of, you know, in our exactly. own little cocooned world, you know, and I'm right. kind of taking the dogs along the coast. I can right. see, you know, it's lovely that when you can get kind of updates and see that's, what you're doing. You can, you can just provide the link to my blog or the, or the Facebook page. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I could probably be putting up regular, regularly photos up there. Yeah. Fantastic. So when do you think you're going back out then? Are you got specific be, dates on? Yeah, I'll be going out in May um, for a relatively short trip um, and then back again in October or November. Lots of photographs, Sal. Yes. <laughs> do you, do you, this is a daft This is, You can tell where I'm just like sitting watching from the TV. Do you know what I mean? I'm no uh, reality here. But do you get in the water with them or is it just that's an, you know? Yeah, well, we do actually. Right. Um, we've been trying to document their feeding behavior, um, with underwater videography. Yeah. Not really professional stuff, but, um, we're both trying, we're trying to get samples of what they're feeding. They seem to be feeding on zooplankton on krill, um, as opposed to fish, which is very interesting. And this season, this past season, we were able to actually establish that they're not feeding on small fish, at least when we're there. They might, they might also feed on fish, but we've observed them feeding on these small shrimp-like animals called krill. Um, so we're in the water trying to sample krill, trying to get pictures of them actually feeding. And uh, we do have that opportunity. And that's one of the neat things about, you know, you asked about them, um, if you can approach them. When they're feeding, they really are focused on feeding. So it's quite easy to get close to them and get in the water and actually uh, document them. Although the, the tricky part is that they move very fast. So you have to be in the right place at the right time, which is challenging. Yeah. Wow, man. But you're a modern day Jack Cousteau. So. It's, pretty, it's a lot of fun doing what I do. Yeah. It's quite, I'm quite lucky to be able to do it. Yeah. So yeah, if you've got any kind of video or anything like that, you know, like a link to stuff like that, it's it's great. You know, people want to see this. You know, I'm sure. So I do want to. I do want to do that. Yeah. Right. Well, certainly get it. Certainly, you know, from 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 just singly me, Sal, get a get a kind of crowdfunding page or get a Patreon page or something up, so we can kind of Absolutely. donate to you on even, like on a regular basis. That's what you want. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That's what I've That's kind of found. Yes. Like, a, like a monthly donations work much better than kind of the one-offs because the one-offs you spend it (laughs) you know Uh what i mean yeah that sounds great yeah exactly right well look after yourself honestly sal thank you so much and uh, again thank you tony the persistent emails i keep sending you (laughs) it's a great great pleasure to to talk with you that's a lot of fun yes you look after yourself thank you very much sal all right cheers bye-bye I'll put a link on as well to Sal's going to like see what we're talking about there. Get this, try and get this funded over at GoFundMe. So I'll put a link on there as well. So you can, if you want to kind of be part of that and just kind of help Sal get this off the ground and, you know, do more research in that area, it would be fantastic. I would beg you to do that. That would be great. So pop over the website and you'll get some, some links there as well. So that is today's show. What a fun filled show. I hope you enjoyed it. Do you know what I mean? It's just, it's it's lovely to kind of, you know what I mean? That's what just makes this doing this. It's why I want to do it full time, man. Do you know what I mean? It's just like, 
you get a chance to kind of talk to people and, you know, just discover their lives. And, you know, that's just excellent. And if I can kind of mix that in with science fiction as well, then that's all goes to making a great show. So I hope you enjoyed it. I hope if this has made you think, you know that he deserves to, I'll buy him a pint, a, mo- a monthly pint, by the way, you know, one, one a month. Pop over to our Patreon page and do the, do the decent thing there. Do the honest thing and buy us a pint. That would be fantastic. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Social Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two... This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.